Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I travel to Cyprus to explore the historical and cultural past of the island that led to the 1974 invasion and ultimately the Green Line, a buffer zone patrolled by the United Nations Peacekeeping Force that divides the island to this day. Later, I'll be joined by Demetrius Hodges-Safokli, a former Cypriot refugee and founder-CEO of the Center for Social Innovation, an organization that cares about all people, regardless of borders, to increase their purpose and quality of life. Stay with me as I go searching for peace on a divided island. Kalispera! That's good afternoon in Greek, in case you didn't know. Next to English, Greek is the predominant language that's spoken in Cyprus. But contrary to popular belief, Cyprus isn't a part of Greece. In fact, it's not even that nearby. Cyprus is situated in the far eastern portion of the Mediterranean Sea, about 45 miles off the coast of Turkey, 160 miles from Lebanon, 200 miles from Syria, and 500 miles from Greece. Its geographical placement has given the island a rich cultural diversity that is a mix of Mediterranean, West Asian, North African, and European. You won't get far in many parts of the country without seeing the deep blue evil eye that hangs in almost every store and home, a relic of the past that wards off modern-day evil. It was brought to Cyprus from Mesopotamia, better known today as Iraq. From the beginning of modern humankind, traders from all of West Asia, North Africa, and Europe made their way to Cyprus for the island's namesake, Kypros, the Greek word for copper. In fact, the island was first settled by the Greeks during the second millennium BC, and that shaped its formative years of language, culture, and architecture. Beyond copper is the original draw, the island is also believed to be the birthplace of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the final resting place of Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead, and home of the Hollis Sultan Tekei, a mosque complex built for Umm Haram, the maternal aunt of the Prophet Muhammad, and the third holiest place in the world for Muslims. And because of its geographical placement and natural resources, the island became so coveted that it was conquered and ruled multiple times throughout the centuries by the Assyrian, Egyptian, and Persian empires, then Alexander the Great, the Arab Caliphates, the Roman Empire, the French, the Venetians, the Ottomans, and eventually the British, who occupied the island from 1878 until 1960, when Cyprus was granted its independence. That's a lot, but it's critical information to understand what happened once independence was gained. And that was a turf war between two ethnic groups, Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots, and two different visions for what the island should become. Greek Cypriots wanted full island unity with Greece, while Turkish Cypriots wanted a divided island that separated the two groups into two separate countries. And those differences in vision led to a nine-month civil war and ten years of turmoil, as Turkish Cypriots were withdrawn from government and Cyprus became one country, the Republic of Cyprus. Then, in July 1974, a coup was staged by Demetrios Ioannidis, a Greek military dictator who sought to oust Cypriot president Archbishop Makarios III. 
and replaced him with Nico Sampson, with the ultimate goal of Greece annexing the island. Ultimately, Makarios was forced to flee for safety, and Sampson took over, leading to Turkey intervening and invading the island on July 20th, 1974. After a month of fierce battles and bombings that destroyed communities and left thousands dead, a ceasefire was declared, but not before Turkey had captured 36% of the island, and a green line was drawn to separate the north from the south, sending 150,000 Greek Cypriots to the south of the line and 60,000 Turkish Cypriots to the north, all of them becoming refugees in their own country. Nearly 50 years later, the Green Line still divides the island and serves as a buffer zone patrolled by the United Nations Peacekeeping Force. The capital city of Nicosia lies smack dab in the middle and remains the last divided capital city in the world. Entire cities, high-rise hotels, and even the old international airport lie within the Green Line and haven't been touched by humans since 1974. While there have been numerous peace talks over the years, including the opening of the Green Line at nine approved checkpoints, Cyprus very much remains a divided nation. I first traveled to Cyprus in 2019 as a part of a conference delegation from the United States, and I've returned four times since. I've developed friendships and partnerships, and as an outsider who has the privilege to observe, I'm interested in the concept of peace and how fragile it can be, and also the notion of identity and what does it mean to be a Turkish Cypriot or a Greek Cypriot? Why not just a Cypriot? Of course, if history has taught us anything, it's not that simple. But as a storyteller, I see the value in bringing people together across the green line to tell each other stories. And last month, I traveled back to Cyprus to begin laying the groundwork for a facing project to take place on the island between the two groups. And no, I don't believe the facing project is going to save the world. In fact, we're working alongside other groups who have been working for years to find peace and joy and ways to come together despite the green line. One of those individuals is my friend and colleague, Demetrius Hadjusofokli, who survived the 74 invasion, became a refugee in his own country, and works today to bring people together, regardless of borders, to increase their purpose and quality of life. I had the chance to sit down with Demetrius to reflect on the invasion, the subsequent years, and his hope for the future of the island nation. So, get ready, grab your virtual passport, and come along with me. We're headed to the mountains of Agros, Cyprus. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. BAI provides behavior-based interventions to all individuals with behavior programming needs to enhance their quality of life. Behavior Associates is the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at behavioraba.com and 765-282-8ABA. Sorry, Sean. Production note. I want to welcome to the show Demetrius Haji Sofokli, who is the CEO and founder of the Center for Social Innovation, a for-profit company that cares about people worldwide to increase their quality of life. Demetrius, thank you for joining me. Thank you, JR. Uh, nice to have you here in Cyprus. Yes, we're sitting in beautiful Cyprus, and I want to start out, I've shared with our listeners a bit about the history of Cyprus and what led to the 1974 invasion. And you were eight years old at that time. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Will you take us back to 1974 in the morning of that day in the kitchen and what happened? Yes. Um, 
I mean, you ha we have to say that in Cyprus at that time, before that particular day, uh, people were peaceful. Uh, everybody was living their lives like in any other place around the world. Um, I'm pretty sure there were some politics that people were not aware uh, of, uh, because if you think about it, 1974, many, many years ago, we didn't have availability of information like we do now. So uh, my father basically kind of came to me. It was early in the morning, uh, on the 20th of July, 1974. And uh, in his effort to make sure that uh, myself and my sister were not concerned and scared, he basically pointed the, the, the warplanes up in the sky, uh, dropping bombs um, five, six hundred yards from where our house was. And you could hear them? Uh, we could hear them, and we could actually see the bombs falling from the sky. Um, and he would point out and say, look, look what's going on, and then we'll hear the bombs. Um, and that was basically the beginning of a journey that is still going on. I'm 57 now. Mm -hmm. That was when I was 80 years old. Um, and still there is no resolution of that problem that was created in, on that day in 1974, in July 1974. Mm -hmm. And one thing I want our listeners to understand is that you became a refugee, but a refugee in your own country. Yes. Talk a bit about those four years that you lived in your own country, but in a refugee camp. Yeah. Um, well, after that morning, basically, uh, we were trapped. I'm from the occupied side. Uh, we were trapped in our village, and um, the vi that, the, that specific village was of a particular importance because it was very close to the national airport. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the assets that the military, I guess, wanted to destroy was that airport, so the civilians couldn't move around. Um, also, uh, again, at that time, remember, this is a small island. Uh, it's probably the size of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, because of the size of the island and the resources that were on the island, not many people had uh, cars. Mm -hmm. So basically, we were waiting for the nightfall, um, and my father had a car. Mm -hmm. So uh, 17 people from the neighborhood got in one car um, to go away. Wow. In one car? In one car. Were um, you on top of the car? We were like uh, everywhere uh, like, you could fit? We were laying on top of each other, uh, you know, five, six people at the front, other people uh, at the back, mm. some people at the, uh, you know, uh, storage area of the car, their legs hanging out. Mm. Um, and we went up to a point, it was dark, um, and we couldn't turn on the lights, uh, put on the lights of the car because we didn't want the planes, the war planes to see us. Oh. Um, and at some point, we basically couldn't go with the car anymore. So we had to walk and all that stuff uh, until we went to the south of the island uh, for some safety, which mm -hmm. we did. And uh, uh, we went to a village up in the mountains. And that was the first night mm -hmm. um, in, of the war. Yeah. Um, after that, and for a period of 15, 16 days, 
every day we will move somewhere else because we didn't know mm-hmm. where the conflict was. Uh, there was no communication, no no good radio information. Mm-hmm. Um, and after those uh, first 15 days, 20 days and all that, uh, my family was able to find uh, one room mm-hmm. that didn't have any running water and no electricity. And we basically stayed uh, between uh, that room and outside, depending what the situation was, uh, for almost five years, four and a half uh, years, uh, with no electricity, so we would study at night with candlelights and all that. And we were actually uh, maybe a few miles away from our home, but we couldn't go there because there was conflict going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I tell this story to people today, I actually remind them of what's going on around the world, world, uh, world today mm-hmm. in Syria, in Palestine, in Libya, in you know Iran, Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know all these places are familiar to uh, American people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a similar situation. Uh, people didn't have jobs. People didn't have money. Um, so it was a struggle for. Um, in my case, my parents every day to make sure we had something to eat mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning. At what point did you realize you wouldn't be going back to your home? Uh, I think it depends on the age. Yeah. Some people even today, after mm-hmm. almost 50 years, they believe that they're going to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, but the younger generation like me, mm-hmm. uh, we know that probably that's not possible. And if it's a very strange feeling because now we can go visit mm-hmm. our old villages. Um, and it's very strange to see your house that your parents built mm-hmm. uh, with their own money, the, you know, their own hands in some cases, and not be able to, to live there. To live there so you did see your old home. What kind of feelings or emotions, if any at all, did you have being back in that place after so many years. It's very emotional, very mm-hmm. emotional, because uh, being a refugee is not just, just a word. Yeah. Uh, being a refugee means that you are not accepted in some cases. Financially, you have to start from zero. Mm-hmm. So you have think about yourself right now, and you say, you know, mm-hmm. now you are in the house, you have uh, a job, you have income, you have food on the table, but tomorrow morning, it's all gone. You have nothing. Mm-hmm. And you have to start from zero again, but without having the resources to start again. So you don't have a job, you don't have nothing, mm-hmm. and you have to start again your life. And on top of that, a lot of people had families, had kids, mm-hmm. uh, worrying about their kids' health and uh, safety and education and all the things that people worry about mm-hmm. um, in general. So it was a very weird feeling, uh, very emotional. Uh, my mother lost her parents in the war, mm. uh, and that's an interesting story by itself. Um, for her, still now, she's 83 years old. Um, she's a, she was a young woman when this happened. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you want to put some perspective to it, put yourself when you are 30, 32 years old mm-hmm. in a situation where you have to run and fend for your family. Everything from water to food to clean your kids to put them to sleep to whatever. Um, it's very tough. So mm-hmm. for her, it was tough also emotionally because she lost her parents mm-hmm. um, in the war. Um, and again, a lot of people still struggle today. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because in reality, there was not much support that was given to the refugees. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but people are doing okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, they rebuild their families, their um, kids grew. Remember, it's 50 years now. Yeah. Uh, so somebody who was born in 1974 now is 50 years old, yeah. al- almost. They have grandkids and all that. So life goes on. Mm-hmm. And uh, how you deal with life, and we were talking before about that, is yeah. it depends on you. It's, it's how you take the negatives in your life and you manage that in a way that is going to bring you something positive. Yeah. And we were talking before, too, there's a saying that maybe is said here in Cyprus, too, but I hear it often in the States, that harm is often done to us by others that could be unforgivable. But the healing is a choice that we have to make as individuals. And you found that in yourself, and that's evident in the work that you do today. What is it about your experience that you feel led you to focus on creating positivity, joy, uh, good life experiences for people around the world? Yeah. Um, You know, for me specifically, one of the things that we had uh, in my family that uh, really helped us stay whole was love. Mm. Uh, my parents always showed love to us, uh, even though they didn't have enough resources to take care of us. Love was in abundance. Mm-hmm. Uh, every morning, every night, will always tell us they love us, they care about us, and they want to see us, me and my sister, succeed in life. Mm-hmm. At some point, I um, came to the United States uh, to study, to go to school. Um, and I got involved on the venture capital side, mm-hmm. basically the mentality of making money. Yeah. And after a while, when you do that, you realize that in, in, in most cases, it doesn't help the people around you. Mm-hmm. It helps some people to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really help people in general to have a good quality of life. So when I came back to Cyprus, my mentality was to figure out what helps people um, have a good life. And uh, two things came up. Uh, it was empathy, and there's a nice, beautiful gr- Greek word. Uh-huh. It's called ensinesthesi. Ensinesthesi. Oh. Are you going to have me? <laughs> Are you going to have me repeat that? Ensinesthesi. Ensinesthesi. Synesthesi. Yes. Which is, it basically means empathy. Yeah. Caring about people. Um, and the other thing that kind of I figure out that we need to develop as human beings is confidence. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, empathy comes from your parents and from your um, uh, environment as you grow up. Uh, when people show you that love and care and mm-hmm. compassion, right? Um, and confidence also comes from that because when they show you love and care and they encourage you mm-hmm. um, to do good in life, to be a good human being, to care about other people, to care about yourself, that builds confidence as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, those are also the two things that we are killing as parents mm-hmm. and yeah. as communities. Yeah. Because we always tell the next person, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, you are not mm. good at this, you are not good at that. What you are doing is not right and it doesn't mm. fit the profile and all that stuff. And all that basically kills the, kills the spirit of mm. us as human beings. Yeah. So, 
even though we're so hardwired for empathy, it's based in our in our DNA and our brain. And I, you're absolutely right; it's so innate. But society is trying to push that part of us yeah. away. So coming back to Cyprus, uh, I developed this uh, company with a bunch of other uh, colleagues. Um, Center for Social Innovation, and basically our purpose, our stated purpose, is to improve quality of life within the communities that we touch. Mm-hmm. And we try to do that in many, many different ways, um, either by supporting people through embracing them and encouraging them and motivating them, or in some cases, when uh, it's needed, provide financial support and education Um, so we can bring goodness out. Um, and that's what we do. Yeah. Do you think, had you not gone through your experience as a refugee in your own country and having somewhat of a vastly different upbringing than you, than you probably would have had had yeah. the Turks not invaded in 74 and you had been in your home that you knew as a child... Do you still think that you would have moved toward the work that you do today, or do you think you would still be a venture capitalist in the United States? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's mm. like what, with all the what-if <laughs> scenarios, right? right. <laughs> I can uh, try. I mean, I can be nice and say, "Well, I will be the same," right? Yeah. I don't know, but mm-hmm. my parents loved us before the war. Yeah. And showed it to us. Mm-hmm. And they left us after the war, and they showed it to us. So the qualities that built that concern that I have about society mm-hmm. and my fellow human beings, and I'm not the only one. I mean, a lot of people do that, right? Yeah. Um, was there. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, the, the seed was there. The fermentation was there. Mm-hmm. It just maybe, perhaps, the suffering part helped make that feeling stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the things that maybe as parents, as uh, you know, friends, maybe it's one of the things that we need to cultivate is it's okay sometimes to have difficult things in life. Yeah. But again, the issue there is how do you face these difficulties? Mm-hmm. How do you address them? And how do you come out of those difficulties as a human being? Mm-hmm. To create joy and positivity. Exactly. Rather than negativity. That's what I love so much about your work. And I just met you last November, and you shared a bit of your story with me then. And I was struck by it then as I am now, how... I mean, I've, I've, I've known this is my fifth time to Cyprus. I've, I've known about the invasion, the history for some time, and I've gotten some stories of refugees, but you're the first person I've met who has turned that experience and healing into something you've brought back through positivity, and I appreciate the work that you do so much. What's your hope for the future of Cyprus? Um, Cyprus is a small place, so I guess it's easy to manage um, and provide solutions for the problems that kind of affect us mm-hmm. in education, infrastructure, healthcare, um, peace between uh, mm-hmm. you know, the people on the island, mm-hmm. um, live with love and create for our kids. Uh, so my hope is to have people um, in positions of leadership that have 
goodness and positiveness at heart. Mm -hmm. Because only then we are going to find a solution to all these issues, all these challenges that are going to benefit the so these solutions, the people that, that live on this island, mm -hmm. or people that choose to come and live on this island. Mm -hmm. um, so I am hopeful. Um, mm -hmm. I see a lot of good things that can uh, become reality. Mm -hmm. But uh, we need, I, I think we are poor on leadership. And being poor on mm -hmm. leadership, I think, is a global phenomenon. It's not yeah. only a, a Cyprus mm -hmm. phenomenon. Um, so I think as people, we need to wake up and begin choosing our leaders um, in, in, in a better way. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that is going to bring people in leadership positions that can solve these problems that make us miserable sometimes, mm -hmm. so people can begin smiling and living their lives yeah. in a positive uh, way. And be less divisive. Yeah. yeah. We need to move from the ego. You're right. Yeah. Do you think peace is possible in Cyprus? Do you think that reunification is a possibility, yeah. or what might that look like? Well, again, if they leave it up, up, to, up to people, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Because we see signs now. I mean, I have mm -hmm. friends that are, um, you know, Turkish Cypriots. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they come to my place. I go to their place with my family. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the majority of people are okay with each other. Mm -hmm. um, the politicians, however, for their own reasons, and we can analyze uh, different <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> sure. um, they don't want to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. They do not really want to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, so because of that, I don't think it's going to be solved easily mm -hmm. or soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe down the road, when mm -hmm. some of the issues go away, like the, the economic issue, the property issue, and all that, uh, maybe there are going to be some type of solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say to, our show is broadcast mostly in the United States. What would you say to an American about the refugee crisis around the world? I mean, uh, Sudan is yeah. recent, uh, Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian refugees. And sometimes I hear conversations from Americans about not really being accepting of refugees or not wanting them in, in our country. What would you say to an American with that viewpoint? Yeah. Well, because I know the majority of American people are good people. Mm -hmm. um, and because of the experiences I had in the United States for many, many years, um, positive experiences. Um, I would say that there's not good and bad countries. They're just good mm -hmm. and people that are not that good. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. So when you look at somebody, don't look at them as a refugee or as uh, with, a, with a label. Mm -hmm. Look at them as a human being. Look at that person, that lady, that guy, you know, whatever, as a human being. Mm -hmm. is, is, that, is that human being a good human being? That's mm -hmm. one. Second, uh, refugees or people who suffer around the world are not suffering by accident. Mm -hmm. Some political decision made them refugees. Mm -hmm. made them poor, made them sick. Uh, so what we need to do is to eliminate the, the, the sources of these disasters. Um, however, um, in the light of perhaps not being able to solve all these problems, uh, when you see a refugee, give them an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, 
you are creating a problem. If you give them an opportunity, I can guarantee that the majority of those kids are going to be people that are going to be able to support their families, that perhaps are going to become ambassadors mm -hmm. of the United States around the world, mm -hmm. as opposed to becoming a foe. Um, and all that is going to create a positive momentum. Uh, we need good people around. Mm -hmm. um, and good people can come from everywhere. So look at these people and listen to them mm -hmm. and try to understand what their challenges are. Mm -hmm. And if you can, try to help. Mm -hmm. um, trying to stop these people from looking for a better life is not a solution. Mm -hmm. Because if any of the audience here was in the same situation, would probably do the same, the exact same thing. They would look for a, a better life mm -hmm. for their families. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So give them a helping hand. Mm -hmm. Put your hand out and shake their hand. Yes, shake their hand. And you never know if that refugee is going to want to go back to their country or stay in your country and maybe create the next best thing like you did with the Center mm -hmm. for Social Innovation which is doing amazing work around the world. And I look forward to the work that we will be doing together in the near future that we'll share at some point with our listeners. Is there anything else that you would want to share about the work that you do or about uh, peace and joy in Cyprus? Um, I wake up every morning and uh, I want to make sure, first of all, that my kids and my family are doing well. Um, and I always send them a message and I call them up. And then I begin looking around to my friends and extended family and co-workers and all that. Mm -hmm. And my friends uh, across the pond to the United States, are they okay? Are their families okay? So the message here is that we are going to continue to do this work. Uh, and we're going to be looking at it and trying to figure out better ways to do it. Uh, when we have synergies with good people and good organizations uh, l mm. like you, JR, and the mm. rest of the, the crew, um, we are happy because the more we are, the stronger we are to bring about change. And I know that your heart is um, at the same kind of space. Mm, we're in good company. Uh, yes. Um, so, yeah, look us up. See what you can do to change uh, around in your community. Sometimes it doesn't take money. It just takes some kindness and hard work. Um, and if we can all change a little bit and make things better a little bit where we are um, in our own uh, surrounding ecosystem, mm -hmm. this world is going to become a better world. Mm -hmm. And that's what we want to do. Good. The change really does start at home. Yes. And let's stop killing people with guns yes. and violence. And let's start killing people with love and compassion. Mm, I like that. Dimitris Hadjisofukli, the CEO and founder of the Center for Social Innovation here in Cyprus and around the world. Thank you so much for joining me on the Facing Project radio show. Thank you very much. And welcome to Cyprus. Yes. Thank you for having me back. More about the Center for Social Innovation can be found online at CSICY.com. Special thanks once again to Demetrius Hodgesofokli and all of the staff at the Center for Social Innovation for hosting me while in Cyprus and being a part of today's program. And to the University of Indianapolis for allowing me to tag along with their students and faculty during their Maymester study abroad experience in Cyprus. 
George Shishlis at the Rodon Mount Hotel and Resort provided space to record the interview with Demetrius. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana, and is produced by the amazing producer and sound engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson, and until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA.